0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a
1: month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: This is an ABC podcast. Good
1: plan. Good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast.
0: Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side,
1: Houghton. She
3: was
2: surrounded by blue jumpers. Here's the Groundbreakers,
1: history makers.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. It is Lucy Race here, and today I am sitting in the driver's seat, joining us on the journey through another week of I Can't Believe It's Not Football news <laughs> are my fiercely intelligent, frequently funny, football-loving friends, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. <laughs> Hi, this is Julia Kiera This is Rana Hussain. And this is Kate Sear. There were so many Fs in that uh, <laughs> <laughs> intro, Lucy. I wasn't sure where you were going oh, with it. I'd like to just keep you <laughs> on your toes. Like football-loving. <laughs> How are you doing? How how's everyone doing really
4: good um i feel like there's some light at the end of, end of the tunnel so suddenly my mood is really just soared in the last week. Um, I'm listening to a lot of Carly Rae Jepsen, which is very good for me. But I will say that, you know, we did get some news in terms of footy about the fact that there won't be crowds this year. And so that doesn't look great for me returning to my job. And that has been a huge bummer. And so this whole period of time has been just one big emotional wave to ride. And that has a toll, that takes a toll. And so I'm tired. I'm a lot more on edge and a bit cranky, but like I said, Carly Rae Jepsen has been helping me through.
0: We'll get to some of those, um, some of that news about the AFL in a minute, but I just want to check in, Julia. How are you doing? I'm fine. Is it anything special going on?
1: <laughs> no, it's a normal day. <laughs>
0: just a normal day. Yep, not a birthday.
1: I don't have birthdays. (laughs) Something I need to educate you guys about queer culture is that we don't age. Um,
3: We noticed. We noticed. You just told us you're like 78. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We don't
1: age um, because of the equal distribution of domestic load in queer relationships. This keeps our age at the age that we came out. So I'm 14.
0: I thought it was because you played midnight baseball. (laughs) Little Twilight
3: reference there. Katie, how are you? Well, I'm good, Lou, because you baked blueberry muffins to celebrate Julia Francesca (laughs) Chiera's birthday today. So I'm um, feeling very nice and full in my belly. Um, I'm good. I've had a bit of a week. You know, I have had a family member in in hospital, stuck in hospital in another country. And because of the pandemic, that means I've been unable to fly there and help. And, you know, she'll be all right. My sister will be all right. But um, yeah, like I've just been thinking a lot about the the ripple effects of the pandemic and that You know, there's things like that going on all over the all over the world. People who have sick relatives or old relatives, not not like Julia, of course, who is has frozen in time at the age of fourteen. But um, you know, just all the other stuff that's going on for people that um, has been complicated by the pandemic, which makes it hard. But no, I'm all right otherwise.
0: Well, we send our very best wishes to your lovely sister and to everybody else who is having a hard time. So you mentioned there that we are seeing a few restrictions starting to lighten and there's some news in terms of the AFL. We saw this week that the Victorian clubs have been given the green light to go ahead and train as a full squad but they can't do it yet because we're waiting for the other states um, namely South Australia and WA to catch up. It sounds like That hasn't happened as yet. There was some talk that there might be a revamped fixture available today, but I don't think that's going to happen. One of the other things that I think you alluded to there, Rana, is the fact that there's not going to be crowds. There's also going to be a big change to what football clubs are allowed to spend, and that's going to have ramifications for staff. So that's tough.
4: It's really tough. It's been one of those weeks... The beginning of this lockdown period was really difficult and sad and emotional, and this was kind of a repeat of that. Everybody in football is hurting at the moment. Part of me is like, oh my God, everybody's hurting at the moment, but I guess being in it and just seeing such wonderful people and friends and colleagues not know what the rest of their year looks like, whether they'll get a job again, because of course you can't get another job at the moment. There's no one really hiring the whole industry shut down. So uh, it's really rough. And I think I really feel for uh, women's football in particular, because being out of season means... It potentially is out of mind as well and it's just such an unknown as well. So that's where my mind is at the moment.
0: We did see this week that Port Adelaide won't be able to take part in the sandfall and we know there's going to be news coming out about some of the other state leagues. We've had some people ask questions about that on Twitter and that's something that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. We will definitely come back to you on that. I'm Sabrina Frederick and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Are you guys ready to roll up your sleeves in Malay? Jake Nile wrote a piece this week called Laid Bare, How the Dean Laidley Story Reveals Culture Change. And, Kate, you were quoted in the piece. What have your thoughts been about the way that this particular story has been covered in the media?
3: Yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I really enjoyed the discussion that you had last week about it. I thought it was really insightful. As most of our listeners will know, there have been some developments in the last couple of days. Laidley applied for and was granted bail on Monday. He's now in a rehabilitation facility. In court, his lawyer indicated that Laidley was dealing with... Gender dysphoria, and his QC Phil Dunn was interviewed outside the Melbourne Magistrates Court, and I just want to uh, throw to some of what he had to say.
4: Dean Lately is a very, very sad case. He's not a bad man. He's just a man who's lost his way in a bad way.
3: I was quite taken by that phrasing, actually, and I just wanted to offer some reflections on it. And I want to begin, of course, by acknowledging that these allegations are now the subject of a court proceeding, and there are some reports that he may deny some of those allegations. So uh, we must acknowledge that first up. But in general terms, I want to just sort of move away from the specific case to think about the media, because I think there is a real need for real care in the media reporting in this case, given the significant potential for something that's this high profile to shape you right public understandings of various things, including cross-dressing, but also drug use, mental health, stalking and violence against women. And I want to commend Jake Nile, actually. I think he he did a really great job with that piece. I think it was really considered. But yeah, I do want to talk about some of the complexities surrounding these issues in general when they make their way into the media. I suppose the starting point for me is that I've been reflecting on the fact that there's a long history of gender diverse populations being positioned as mentally ill or pathologised in some way. Uh, It's also extremely common for people with mental illness or people who are said to be suffering from mental illness to be positioned as dangerous and as criminals. And this is where things might become conflated and oversimplified in ways that I fear can be quite dangerous. So we know, for example, that people who are experiencing mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of crime rather than the perpetrators of crime. But we know from research that publics often think the opposite, that people with mental illness are dangerous. And so there's, still heaps of stigma attached to mental illness but the similar stigma is still attached to gender diverse populations and we know from a lot of research in this space that that, that's still the case so as one example research undertaken by the Australian Centre in Sex Health and Society at La Trobe University back in 2010 with young people found that 61% of young people from LGBTQI communities reported verbal abuse because of homophobia and 18% reported physical abuse because of uh, homophobia and 69% reported other forms of homophobia including exclusion and rumours. And there's no reason to believe that there's been a reduction in the experience of violence and abuse directed at LGBTQI populations in the intervening years. So if there's a situation where all of these things come together, that is gender diversity, drug use, mental health and so on, I think the risk of prejudice and stigma and and the perpetuation of really problematic stereotypes about who's dangerous or what causes crime is very high. And as a result, the need for nuance and care in our conversations is even higher, I think. And if reporting about these things goes wrong, it really does risk further perpetuating stigma and prejudice against LGBTQI people, but also people who use drugs, people experiencing mental health issues and so on, and then it can downplay the seriousness of uh, criminal offending. I'm just really concerned about what gets centred in these discussions and what gets shifted out to the periphery, particularly when we're talking about um, perhaps criminal behaviour. Another way to think about it is perhaps in the the words of two philosophers whose work I really admire. That's Anne-Marie Moll, who is a Dutch philosopher, and John Law from the UK. And they say that the world is complex. It escapes simplicities. They go on to say that which is complex cannot be pinned down. To pin it down is to lose it. And over the next few weeks and months, I just, I just hope that really whatever we do with this conversation, that we hold on to that complexity because the world is complex and we do need to grapple with it as a complex set of problems.
1: That's so important to keep that front of mind, to acknowledge the complexity there. You say it a lot more intelligently than, <laughs> than I will attempt. But... When anything like this happens, when someone has made a poor decision, there does seem to be this real need in the media, in the media narrative that's created, but also in the people that read the media, us, to attribute it to something definable. Because I think that it makes the reader feel safer in that, It makes them feel like, well, I wouldn't do that because I don't fit into any of those boxes. And it ignores that we are all capable of making poor decisions. We hope we don't. We hope we do things that align, that our behaviours align with our values, but, but they don't always. So... This experience with with Dean Ladley, but the experience that we're all living through, has shown us that the world we live in isn't simple. We're we're not simple. We can't all be one thing. We can't just tick one box.
0: There was one thing that Jake wrote in that piece that really stood out to me, and it was, I'll quote it here, where he said, in-group membership within footy transcends out-group status in mainstream society. And I thought that was a really pertinent thing to say because, The effects of discussions like this can be felt by people who don't have the protection and support of in-group status. In mainstream society We talk about that in terms of sport But that can be, you know, belonging to All sorts of other um, groups that they, I guess give you that sense of belonging And make you feel like You're actually part of something And I think, you know, if we've learned anything Through this time of being socially isolated It's how important it is for us To feel part of something I'd just like to note that this weekend Is, on Sunday, is Idaho Hobbit Day Which is the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, phobia and transphobia and that's usually a day that gets embraced by lots of sporting organisations and sporting clubs. There are some events that are happening online so if you just Google Ida Hobbit some things are coming up and if you follow people like Proud to Play on Twitter um, they've been sharing some good stories as well. It raises a question of this whole conversation of how the media talks about things and in this funny little vacuum where there's no football being played we are seeing some stories where it actually becomes what the media said and there was a tweet this week by Tom Brown, who had made a claim about what the sanctions to the Adelaide Football Club would be. Did anyone see that story?
3: It was extraordinary because he essentially um, went
0: public w- with
3: what he believed the sanctions for the club would be, and it turned out that he he got that pretty wrong. And I I think that uh, Tom Brown unfortunately has got more than one thing uh, wrong in footy reporting over the last little while. And and I think it does feed into and raise legitimate concern about media reporting and sort of sensationalism around footy. I'm interested though in what you all think about the sanction itself, and or just what what's happened with Adelaide for for listeners who don't know the. The story is that some players were caught training together in violation of the pandemic regulations. 16 players have been given a one-week suspension and Ben Hart, the assistant coach, got a six-week suspension. Greg Bourne, for the age, called it laughably lenient. But he also pointed out that financial penalties would be sort of disproportionately harsh in this context because all of the clubs are feeling such a financial strain.
4: What did you think? Did you think it was a fair outcome? I think so. The penalty really needed to show to the rest of the industry that this is not going to fly and I think that's what it's done. Anybody who's in football at the moment just really wants to get back to football, so being stood down is quite full-on and I think that was appropriate and I don't think anyone's going to make that mistake again, right? You hope not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I am fine with it. I don't feel like there's necessarily any advantage gained and and to be perfectly honest like questions about bias of you know whether some people are able to start training with a medicine ball yet or other people aren't um, I just find that detail just too much to deal with at the moment when we've got such big questions about you know really fundamental things about health and safety and well-being of everybody you know in football but outside of football as well.
4: And I think the other thing it's showing us is just how much particularly this state runs on football and that how much everybody's eyes are on football and when's it going to be back and who's doing what and when and how. And it's incredible that, as you say, even in this time of... High stress for everybody and so much is going on. Football
0: is still that marker of are we okay or are we not? Mm. (laughs) I think that's profound. I do too. You know, we have to talk about, I'm going to use a little term that I've heard through the pandemic, the elephant in the Zoom. (laughs) 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 I don't think we can get away from the melee without talking about the... TikTok video that Joel Salwood posted with his wife Britt. I imagine most people have seen this, but Joel and Britt put this little video on their social media where Joel picked Britt up and used her as a mop to clean the floor. They have both deleted the video from their accounts this week after it got, shall we say, some very mixed mm-hmm. feedback. I saw a little segment on Footy Classified where Caro was really kind of on her own trying to explain to Sam McClure and Kane Corns and Matthew Lloyd why some people didn't find it funny. They just couldn't get it. And it's an interesting thing that I keep seeing that when some people don't laugh at a joke or have the feedback that, you know, the joke just didn't land for them, they didn't find it funny, they thought it might have some other things, is that it all of a sudden gets labelled as outrage or PC gone mad What did you guys think? Firstly, that actual clip of Caroline
1: Wilson and the three fellas, my blood was boiling watching it because they really – look, they didn't attack her but they were very – aggressive in making her justify why it could be seen as offensive without giving any ground or reflecting and it was for me I'm like they should just show this in bullying classes like this this, you know why is it up to Caroline Wilson to kind of explain you know the basics of gender equality you know that treating a woman like a mop is not okay I I was really struck by that but when it first came up that Joel Sowood clip going through my Twitter feed and AFL Women's had put up a, a post, you know, acknowledging International Nurses Day and it acknowledged some of the AFLW players who are nurses at the moment and working in healthcare. And then there was Joel Selwood. And I, and I just thought, God, AFLW versus AFLM. Like, look, well, this is what people are doing with their isolation time. I don't know. I could throw something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right now. Two
4: things that came to mind for me. First of all, how did This get through. Not only did Joel Salwood put it up on his own socials, but then Channel Seven also amplified it. So to me, that just told me so much about um, our industries, both media and sporting, that there wasn't a thought in between all those layers to think, okay, maybe this isn't okay, and people won't love this. And to me, that's really worrying because it is a really risk averse media landscape and footy landscape. Nobody wants to be in hot water yet. This
1: got through. Do you Literally think it in hot water. <laughs> Literally in hot dipped water. Dipped into hot water. Do you think the Channel Seven amplification was thoughtless, or whether they knew that it would that it was essentially clickbait?
4: Oh, I don't know. I
1: well, we you don't know, but I, I I wouldn't assume either way.
4: The other thing for me, and this sort of came out in a conversation with you, Dr. Kate, in terms of that's a worry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the response to moments like this is often oh but it was just a joke and we didn't mean it to cause any offence but intention is not necessarily what we need to wait in conversations like this and that it's not about necessarily what was intended obviously there was no intention to offend but it doesn't negate the fact that harm comes out of it or that people can feel offended and that's what's frustrating about these conversations
3: yeah, absolutely, Ron. And we had a long chat about that yesterday. And I feel very frustrated by where these debates land time and time again, whether it's Joel Selwood doing this, whether it's Eddie Maguire making a, a joke in inverted commas about drowning Carolyn Wilson, whether it's stuff to do with even the booing of Adam Goods, We always get stuck with this debate. It ends up being a question about what the individual intended and then how the individual who receives the information responded. So like, did Joel... So would intend to make a comment about, you know, violence against women or did he intend to be hurtful or harmful? Or did he just intend to make a joke? If the answer is, yeah, he just intended to make a joke, that's often where the conversation grinds to a halt. And we see this individualised take as well at the other end, you know. Did you, Rana, or you, Julia, listening to it, watching it, take offence? And then people, you know, end up kind of going down the political correctness gone mad path, uh, which frustrates me. But, you know, feminists have been writing about and talking about this stuff for decades and urging us to move beyond this sort of individualised response and looking at intent. And I just wish that we would take heed of some of that uh, discussion and debate that's been going on for decades, because I think it helps us take the debate into new places which are helpful for us. You know, what those feminists generally say is that there isn't a distinction between reality and representation because these sort of images, representations and discourse shape our world. The intent with which they are put out into the world doesn't really matter. And so it doesn't matter if someone says, I didn't intend harm. The more important question is like, not what did this person intend, but what does the image or what does the discourse do in the world? And if we could just shift our conversation in that way, which I think so many women in particular, but also allies and you know minority communities have been asking us to think about social problems in that way for a long time, then I think that would help the debate move along.
0: I think this is one of those incidents that it really does gain from having A really nuanced kind of discussion about it because it is very borderline. Mm. And, you know, sometimes there are issues that come up that are just so clearly one way or the other. But this is something that sits in a very interesting place. And yes, on one hand, here are two people who are clearly consenting to have a joke, thought it was funny. They could see the humour in it. A lot of people could see the humour in it. And that's fine. That reality can exist in the same space as the tropes that that raised, making a lot of people uncomfortable. So the minute that I saw that, I heard in my head, oh, sweep the floor with you, I'll wipe the floor with you and that's really loaded and I think what we're talking about here is the fact that we don't live in a vacuum, we live in a society where there are patriarchal systems, we know that those systems oppress both men and women and that in trying to break down some of those stereotypes, we can make the world a better place and make things more equal and more safe for people but it takes a lot of work and it means that sometimes you have to look at things critically And I guess so that's where I come back to the discussion on Footy Classified and I know that we don't go there for nuanced discussion Mm -hmm. about gender equality, but I was disappointed that Caro, in trying to raise what she'd seen as, you know, valid response by a number of people in the public, she wasn't even necessarily talking about her own response, but nobody was able to get past that it was a joke, I didn't think it was, you know, there was Mm. a problem and my wife thought it was funny.
4: Ultimately, is it on our football players and people in the public eye who have huge followings to be more educated and understanding the complexities in which they exist. And that's that's the question we should be asking.
0: There's a lot of big themes in that conversation and, you know, they relate to really big things and it's, as we said, you know, sort of away from the personality. It's, you know, issues about gender equality and patriarchal systems and all of these big things that kind of go on in the world and we're going to explore some of those Themes with our guest today, and that's coming up next. Natasha Stott is the founding chair of Our Watch and is Australia's candidate for CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. She's the author of the book on violence, and she's also a footy fan. But to me, she'll always be the senator in Doc Martens. Welcome <laughs> to the outer sanctum, Natasha. How are you? Hello, and uh, I'm wearing sensible shoes
2: today, but they're not docks. Oh, that's, that's not a sad. shame. I still
0: love them. Does this mm-hmm. question follow you everywhere?
2: Absolutely, unless anyone is under the age of about 25 and then they, when they, usually when their parents say something like, oh, she used to wear docks and they look at me with this look of, who's that? Who cares?
0: <laughs> I love it. How are you going in these strange times?
2: Doing okay. I think like most people, um, finding it uh, a bit tough, the lack of socialising. i am I'm reverting to my natural social introvert self and I clearly have learned that I am not any good at homeschooling. Mm-hmm. So good that we work that out early but my kids have done well and uh, obviously quite seriously we're so lucky, so fortunate in so many ways when there are so many people doing it tough in many respects and uh, obviously my work as someone who is involved in preventing violence against women and children unfortunately that work is um, increasing um, and escalating.
0: I'd like to just ask you off the top Natasha, what role you think sport can play in helping to prevent that domestic abuse or violence?
2: Oh, sport, as you know, is so influential in so many ways. You know, role models today, we like to think that parents and caregivers are the most influential, but uh, sports men and women are so influential when it comes to patterns of behaviours attitudes and whether or not you know children and society understands respectful relationships so sport plays a role in so many ways not just influencing our behavior when we see you know, wonderful men and women showing good behaviour towards each other. But also sport is a great equaliser. It's a great leveller. It's a, it's a really good way of teaching qualities about teamwork and respect. But definitely when it comes to preventing violence, I tell you, if captains of AFL teams, men's and women's exert and show profile good behaviour, then our kids will listen to them and they'll emulate, they'll copy that behaviour in a good way. Similarly, if they do bad and silly things, our kids get a message that maybe it's okay to be disrespectful to each other and sometimes to women.
3: You've mentioned something there that's extremely topical this week and I wanted to ask you about it Um, and that is the video that was put on social media this week by the Geelong AFL men's captain Joel Selwood. He put a video on social media of him and his female partner, him picking her up and flipping her upside down and pretending to use her as a mop to mop the floor. Many people said that they thought it was dangerous because it did diminish women and might feed into uh, violence against women in some way and on the other hand a lot of people just dismissed it as a joke between consenting adults. I wonder if you have a take on that, given uh, the comments you just made about the importance of AFL captains' role modelling behaviour.
2: I don't mean to hold our role models and sports people to higher standards. Uh, I wouldn't expect our politicians uh, to be held to anything but a higher standard either, but you've got to be so careful, don't you? And I see that the response was really polarised. I get that a lot of people say, come on, at worst it was silly. Is this people going mad with political correctness? But you know what, you've got to be so careful about context. And in Australia today, in fact, Last week, two women murdered. The issue of gendered violence, the issue of respect of women and an understanding of women's roles and responsibilities in society, that's really front of mind. So for a lot of people, seeing, you know, a powerful bloke using his partner, albeit with consent, as a mop, reinforcing some silly stereotypes, yeah, at best it was really silly and ill-thought-out. At worst, it sent a message that some people might see as, oh, it's okay to treat women in that way. Joel Selwood, pretty impressive guy. My son adores him. I know that if my son sees that, that he'll say, okay, well, that's pretty funny joke. I wouldn't like to think that he would then copy that behavior with his sister or any other girl or woman for that matter. But these are the things we've got to think through. He was respectful in that he listened to the commentary. He took it down. But yeah, we've just got to think through things in this day and age in a way that is mindful of current circumstances. And I tell you what, Right now with COVID there are lots of more lots more tension. Mm. Tensions are exacerbated for a whole range of reasons. It's probably a good time, yep, we need a joke, but it's a good time too to just think about the context more carefully.
0: You know, we have seen reports that multiple women have been killed in the last week. Why isn't this front page news in this country and what could we be doing better?
2: Well, obviously, there are a lot of competing issues right now for front page stories, but this is a national emergency and it deserves greater attention. The issue of disrespect of anyone, male, female, that is an issue for society. The level of violence in society generally is a big problem. But specifically, the level of violence against women and children in Australia today is extraordinary. Uh, Sixteen women, at least, have been murdered or died violently this year. And obviously children have been hurt, abused or killed as well, as we know from that horrific case in Brisbane, the tragedy affecting Hannah Clark and her children. You know, this is not an exception to the rule. This is an issue that affects Australia. Every week, every week at least a woman is murdered. So why isn't it front page news? Well, sometimes it's really hard to come to grips with what we can do as society to affect change. Um, and there's also an element of we're getting used to it. It's not that our society is complacent because I actually think the community can't bear this violence. I think we're sickened by it, all of us. Um, but sometimes you think, gosh, what can I do to help? And my message to people is always, there are things we can all do to increase respect for each other. And of course, there's a lot that we need to do as a society to make sure that men, women, boys and girls have the same rights, the same treatment, uh, the same opportunities. And we're not there yet. I wish we were. And I never underestimate the role of uh, sport in this because I think the role of AFLW, its entry into the upper echelons of the AFL league and competition. Hasn't that made a difference even in a small way to how we view champions in society and the opportunities for women and girls. So little things make a difference. But yeah, I wish it was front page news more often for the right reasons.
1: Hi Natasha, it's Julia here. We've seen through the pandemic that the economic and caregiving impact has disproportionately affected women. Has anything in particular surprised you about that or really stood out to you about it?
2: Yes and no. Having done work, particularly in the region and internationally, I've always seen the disproportionate effect on women and girls, particularly when it comes to disasters, uh, be they natural or other disasters. The the scope and the rate and pace of this pandemic has surprised us all, but it's exposed a lot of things about our society, whether it's the effect on workers, female workers, you know, um, many of whom happen to be in those caring professions, healthcare workers, for example, or whether it's the economic impact on women who are losing their jobs. You know, we know a lot of women employed in casual, low-skilled, part-time, low-paid positions. They're going to be at the brunt, um, as are many men, I recognise, but they're going to be at the brunt of some of those workforce changes and, and loss of income. And then we look at the caregiving roles. We joke about being at home and homeschooling, but I also know that a lot of women, some of whom are in paid work as well, are really juggling right now. And then you magnify that with the fact that there are many, many single parents who happen to be women out there juggling kids, loss of income, let alone health issues, let alone mental health issues, let alone the issue of violence. So we're disproportionately affected as women. Am I surprised by that? Not entirely. Am I worried and shocked by it all? Absolutely. Um, And I'm hoping at the end of all of this, whenever it may happen, you know, in the post-COVID era, whenever that is, that we start to redesign our society in a way which has a bit of a gender lens and values these roles better. You know, the fact that we got free childcare for essential workers during this crisis, what does that tell us? Well, that's an essential role. It's an essential service. And some of us have been arguing for it for many, many years. How does it take a pandemic to achieve it? Maybe there'll be some lessons learned.
4: I wanted to ask you about politics. And, you know, as an Australian who loves her democracy and the idea of the political system, I'm... Would love to encourage my daughter into politics and would love to see all young girls head in that direction. But there's a huge part of me that is fearful of the scrutiny that women face, the misogyny, and just not sure about this system as a whole. What do we say to our girls about going into politics and do we steer them in that direction?
2: Well I would love to see more women and girls getting actively involved in politics and activism and parliament. My life has been about encouraging women to do that but I've always always encouraged women with a very honest lens and that is we need to talk very openly and frankly about how women are treated whether it's the scrutiny to which they're subjected in the media or whether it's the awful things that are said and done in parliaments and believe me there have been some awful things said and done in parliaments even in recent times and I look back to my political and parliamentary life and I cannot believe some of the things that were said some of the articles that were written you know I often joke about the fact that the first business lunch I went to I was asked if I went into politics to meet a husband (laughs) I mean hey look at the caliber girls pretty good (laughs) Uh, but no that wasn't the reason so the good news is things are changing too slowly, but they are changing for the better. And secondly, people need to know that critical mass makes a difference. So, more women, more diversity, so people from all backgrounds, all ages, Indigenous, non Indigenous, you know, men and women with disabilities, people from different parts of Australia. When that's better reflected and represented, that'll give us all more faith in the institutions, but also it will provide more of a support structure and a network for anyone aspiring to be a politician. But I do encourage people to go into politics, break the mold. You don't have to conform (laughs) to the stereotypic view of what constitutes a politician.
3: Lucy mentioned at the outset that you're Australia's candidate for CEDAW. You were supposed to be in New York, I think at the moment meeting with member states and campaigning. Instead, you're doing that on Zoom, with your dog, Merkel. (laughs) I think you'd be the first Australian representative on that committee for many decades. What would it mean to you? And would there be a place if you got that role to advocate using sport to eliminate forms of discrimination? Is there sort of an agenda you have in relation to sport you could tell us about?
2: Absolutely. Well, I'm really honoured to be Australia's candidate, especially as you say, it's been almost three decades since anyone has served on the committee on the elimination of discrimination against women. So, I would be honoured to represent Australia, but also in theory you serve as an independent expert. So the idea is to provide guidance to member states on policy, on gender equality, but also hold different governments, including our own, to account on issues affecting gender. And that might be in any field. So it can be parliamentary politics right through to gender pay gap, rates of violence against women, and indeed women's reflection and representation in sport. And I'm a big believer in sports diplomacy, and I know that our government has been too. I mean, a lot of the ways that the government does its soft diplomacy or soft power work or international development work in our region is through sport, whether it's, you know, football, whether it's soccer, whether it's a range of well rugby, obviously, particularly in our region. So I think with CEDAW, you'll find that there are a lot of women who are especially committed to sports diplomacy, Diplomacy, And I noticed the Australian government on the brochure that they're sending around to 190 member states, because we're trying to get a lot of votes, they've put a picture of me playing cricket in Vanuatu. (laughs) Now, I'd forgotten about this, but there's a game for, um, it's sort of for the the mummers cricket. So really women over 60. Uh, I'm not quite there yet. If you remember that famous John Howard moment when, you know, he bowled (laughs) the ball in such a terrible fashion. (laughs) That was me like in full traditional Vanuatu wear. So I'm not sure if I've actually used sport in an effective way to advance democracy, but I've certainly given it my all. I tell you what, the things they, they got me to do as ambassador from... Netball to kicking the footy to and whether it was you know kicking a Sharon or whether it was me you know trying to prove my prowess as a as a you know soccer star and you should see the bat that they were using these mamas in Vanuatu um, when it came to cricket it looked a bit like a cross between a plank of wood and a baseball bat but but quite seriously just the opportunity for women and girls to be involved in sport. That's an issue. Even in refugee camps in places like Kenya, Kakuma, refugee camp, um, even when I was in the Solomons, there are girls that won't participate in a particular sport, especially football, as in soccer, because it's considered a boy's chance or opportunity. So there are still barriers and there are still opportunities, not only because it's a fair thing to do and the right thing to do, but also because sport can change hearts and minds. Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Natasha. Just before I let you go, I'm going to ask you one more last question to see if you can answer it in five words or less. But as sporting administrators around the world are going to have to start making difficult decisions about resource allocation in this post-COVID world, what would you like to see them prioritise?
2: I want to make sure that the gains that we've made in women's sport throughout the world are not lost. I want women's sport to be prioritised, not just because it's fun and it's good and it's pleasurable, but because it is actually a gateway to change and progress and gender equality across the world. So yes, women's sport must be prioritised.
0: Thank you so much for joining us and good luck with the CEDAW nomination. And we hope we get to speak to you again soon.
2: Thank you, and thank you for the great work that you're all doing. Um, just wonderful uh, entertainment and informative in this really, really difficult time, so thank you.
0: If this conversation has raised any issues for you, you can call one eight hundred respect What an absolute privilege to talk to Natasha today.
3: I just also wanted to bring attention to an open letter that she and many other prominent South Australians and organisations have signed and released today and it's an open letter calling for greater vigilance on domestic violence issues. Many sporting organisations have signed it, including the South Australian clubs. AFL, AFL Women's are behind it. We'll share it on our socials. You know, just another example of the important leadership and work that she's doing.
0: I'm Chelsea Roffey. You're listening to The Outer Sanctum.
4: Now many of you already know that we are in the midst of Ramadan. Ramadan is of course a holy month of fasting for people who are observant of the Muslim faith. Uh, We fast from before sunrise to sunset, no water, no food and critically observance of patience and mildness in character which I do find quite (laughs) difficult. Basically it's a pre-season for your personality and your character and I thought I would play a bit of Bashir Huli, the one and only Bashir Huli, uh, reciting the Quran because a lot of people don't know he's actually got quite a beautiful voice. So have a listen to this. <laughs> just lovely. I, I could listen to his voice all day. But in this time of Ramadan, we normally catch up with family or friends, but we, of course, can't do that at the moment. So I thought it would be good to catch up with Hanin Zrika, who, of course, plays for GWS, but she's also the first Muslim and Lebanese woman to play the game. And I called her to see how she's going in ISO and how her Ramadan is going.
5: First of all, have you eaten? Yes. <laughs> I've just eaten. And thank you for letting me be on your podcast. What's
4: happening with you at the moment? How are you feeling your time?
5: Well, I still have my job, luckily, because I work at a school with kids. I'm a teacher aide. I have a really good principal. She didn't let go of no one. Obviously, she put us all on contracts before the year. So that was really good for us. Today was the first day when we had 240 kids. One day a week, kids can come to school now. Like now, coming back to school, kids just feel not normal. Like talking to the mate, I think it's just a bit different, but... It's just, I think school is so important for kids and I just can't wait till things go back to normal for them.
4: How, in terms of being an athlete and fasting, how has that been for you? Have you always fasted throughout your career?
5: Since I was young, when it came to Saturday games, Sunday games, I'd always fast. Even though like, yeah, it's a bit hard and stuff, but I enjoy it. I enjoy playing while fasting, even though like the thirst part is so hard, but once the game's over, it's the best feeling ever. I think knowing that you fasted but I love training in Ramadan I'll still train before the sun goes down I'll still do my gym I'll still go for my runs I I really don't have an issue with it but that's all just local club games that's just normal training but I haven't had to do it at at elite level yet so um I know next year if the season goes how it is I know next year at the back of it will be Ramadan so I'll be playing a few games in Ramadan I don't know how that will go but Likely to have some tips from people that have done it before. I think that's a challenge that yes. I can't wait for. And before my like next year comes, I'd really want to like to talk to Basho or even Adam, mm-hmm. just to know how what they do, what's their routine, how they do it, or do they have something they do special that makes them makes it easy on them. That's a conversation I'd love to have in the future.
4: As a non-athlete, I just can't understand exercising. <laughs> that's <a fun laughs> I get, you know, because I've fasted for a long time since I was a little girl. Do you remember what age you started fasting?
5: Yeah, um, I started fasting when I was seven. I remember when I started, it was like the first day and I was like, all right, let's fast. And then I was like two o'clock. And I was like, I can't do this. So she let me break it. And then the next time I was like, no, nah, I'm just going to fast it all. And then I eventually fasted. So I think when I was seven, I did one day, yes, one day, no, one day, yes, one day, no, until every year it was like just, that's it, full on. So yeah, We you- got used to it. Like when you're little, like all you wanted to do was just be like the
4: adult thing, like fast as much as you could.
5: It's the best feeling. Like like when you don't fast, you just feel guilty. I don't know. It just doesn't feel the same. You don't have the same feeling when everyone's eating on a table. Like oh, I didn't fast, so like you don't feel that that feeling of that food that gives you sense of pride, isn't it? That you yes, a joyful moment, and you know that you've done the the whole day you fasted, and then at time to break your fast with your family. I think it's just rewarding, and that feeling is. Just can't explain
4: it. I have um, my own family traditions around Ramadan. I'm pretty sure they're probably very similar. But can you tell us a bit about <laughs> any of
5: your family traditions around Ramadan? So um, my mum is usually the cooker. She does everything. We help her out and stuff. But um, I'm from the Minya. So in Lebanon, it's a little village. And we're known as the people that do barbecue like three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and people yeah so in in Ramadan people don't usually have barbecues because mm. they don't think it's a right fit but we still have it so I think a tradition for us is barbecues always and just having family over and just breaking our fast together and having dates before just little gatherings I think that's something that we have usually and giving food after to my neighbor even like a month before Ramadan he'd tell me hey he's touched his belly but like I know what's in a month for yous. And I'll be like, oh, yeah. He goes, I cannot wait. I was like, yeah. So, like, actually, it's a tradition. Every after we finish eating, mom gives me two plates and go give it to him. Yeah, I think that's something that we do often.
4: Well, I wish I was your neighbour next time I'm in- <laughs> <laughs> My research tells me that your mum migrated when she was 16. Is that right? Yeah. I'm, wonder, I'm wondering how much of you and your family being into sport and open to you playing sport has to do with her migrating as a teenager and, and growing up here.
5: Um. Yeah, because when I was young, my two brothers played rugby league and mum used to take them to the park and then I was just there. Then um, I think one day I was like, the coach goes, oh, why she just come train with the boys? And I was like, all right, train with them. And then mum thought I was just going to train. And then the coach goes, I want her in my team. Mom was like, oh, really? And then from then she actually she let me play with them. And then from then, 6 to 12, I was playing with the boys. And so mom used to take us like to every game. My older brother used to be on Sundays and me and my other brother used to be on Saturdays. And she used to go between two games and watch us. And then Sunday was my older brother's game. So um, every weekend was football, football, football. And she'd have her little group of friends at the park that sit around and just wait for us to, training, to finish training. Because she had such an open-minded I continued playing sport like when I was 12 I had to stop after 12 it was my last year with the boys I went to a high school that loved sport and then I was 13 14 15 I was just doing school sport because there's nothing for girls outside of that and then once I got introduced to AFL I was 15 and then they Gave me a local club which was Auburn Giants and I put in my maps and I was like mum let's just go there's a local team and then she drove me there and then we went and then she dropped me off there she goes I'll be back in an hour I'm going to my cousin she lives near there <laughs> so she dropped me off from there on I just played a few games and I fell in love with the vibe the people the game I was so grateful that I got introduced to AFL but having my mum's mindset and the way she goes about things doesn't let people Make her decisions and intercept her decisions, which is something that I'm so grateful for, and doesn't doesn't just follow what people people think. I know it's it's a culture thing for girls not to play sport. It's not a, it's not a religion thing. So that's something that I'm forever grateful that mom has. I have a mom's support. I think that that's something that shaped me as a person because if I didn't have my mom's support, I wouldn't be who I am right now. Yeah, I think that's so important, and I'm very grateful that mom is so understanding, and I get to do what I do. Because of her.
4: Part of your pathway to AFL was the multicultural academies. With Corona, we're seeing kind of a stripping back of a lot of those academies, mostly because of financial issues. What do
5: you think about that? How does that make you feel? It's just really sad that from what it was to what it is now, they worked so hard on that to create pathways for diversity. I think because of what happened to Corona, I think it's a shame to let that fall apart. I think it's so important to keep that in the future getting so many from diversities bringing people to the game showing them what AFO is i think it's so important and will make the game grow even bigger they shouldn't stop it because of corona what happens even though if even if it's, it's a setback it shouldn't be something that it's thrown out of the window i think yep it's a setback but we can work on it don't let it go in your mind what's the key to getting different communities playing footy having people go around publicly telling everyone that sport not just obviously Melbourne is all AFL based and it's much bigger there but in Sydney it's it's growing so much there's so much people playing AFL now kids in schools let the game grow and build on pathways for all ages even for girls like there's so much pathways for boys at young ages it's just so easy for them academy academy they get drafted to build for young girls academies games on the weekends fun stuff that they'll enjoy I think that's really important as long as they enjoy it bring more attention to people and they'll come to our game and I think yeah showing that what AFL is and honestly I think AFL is the perfect sport for a girl it's athletic it's such a good sport for a girl and in any other sport I think AFL is a perfect sport.
4: Well I certainly love my footy and I hope there's plenty more for girls because I've got a five-year-old and I would love to see (laughs) yes um that'll be amazing I know you've got prayers and stuff and you probably want to eat a little bit more, so I won't
5: keep <laughs> it any longer.
4: Thank you very much for talking with me.
5: And I hope to meet in person. Um, that would be really good to meet in person, hopefully, after this Corona stuff done. Catch up, inshallah. Inshallah. Thank you so much for speaking to me. No, thanks for having me, Rana. Bye, salam.
0: It's now time for what's quickly becoming our favourite segment. But before we start, I just wanted to say how impressed I was with both Kate and Emma's openers. And look, before we settle on one, I just thought I'd throw another one into the mix. Come on, team, why don't we settle back? <laughs> the footy's is done, it's time to grab a book Or put a movie on Or a pot or song Listen up, I know a little spot where the vibe is cool and the tips are hot, there's not a footy ball, but there's fun for all at the fifth
1: quarter. <laughs> I can't
0: believe you did a strip taste of that. <laughs>
3: Put your clothes back on, Lucy. Too
0: much information. I I just felt we needed musical theatre to represent. (laughs) So good. You know, we just need to go across all the genres before we make an informed decision. Well, this week we thought we'd actually come with a theme. Our theme this week is autumn and... You know, we all like to stretch how we're going to get there. I'm an arts graduate (laughs) and so I can get to anything. And the way I'm going to do it to mine today is via the old English word for autumn was actually called harvest, which means harvest. And harvest can also mean the activity of reaping and gathering. And that's what led me to this week's recommendation. The Yield is a book by Wiradjuri writer Tara June Winch. And this book came out last year. Last month it took out three prizes at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, including Book of the Year, and it was announced yesterday as being on the long list for the Miles Franklin Award. I'd like to read you just a little bit from the book. In it, Albert Gondwindi says, Yield in English is the reaping, the things that man can take from the land, the things he's waited for and gets to claim. In my language, it's the things you give to the movement, the space between things And language is really at the heart of this book As is the theme of dispossession It's the story of August, a young woman Who's been living overseas But returns home to the fictional place of Massacre Plains As her grandfather, Albert Poppy Gondwinty, dies When she gets back, she finds that her home's been threatened by mining There are family relationships to grapple with And there's a love interest And the story is told through the perspective of three characters One of whom is Albert Albert, Poppy Gondowindi, and Albert's story is mostly told through the device of a dictionary of the Waradjuri language, and that's what I think really sets this book apart. It's a challenging and thoughtful book that examines really big and uncomfortable themes, but it's also a really compelling story of family unpacking secrets and fighting for what's right. And in an interview last year, Winch talked about how elders like Dr. Stan Grant Sr. helped her to learn Wiradjuri. She's actually donating a percentage of royalties to fund Indigenous literacy programs with this book. So I highly recommend that you get it onto your reading list. Kate, what have you got for us?
3: Yeah, well, one of the things I've noticed is that many of the most beautiful artworks that have an autumnal theme are pieces of art which are about grief, actually. So whether it be poetry or music, so much of uh, that work connects with themes of of loss and um, and death. And, you know, many of our listeners will know uh, a, a very dear friend of some of us here on the pod passed away recently. And so I've been connecting really closely to some of that literature, reading a lot of poetry with autumnal themes and also listening to music. One of the most beautiful pieces of music I think ever written with an aut- autumnal theme that's also about grief is the classic jazz standard Autumn Leaves. And I just wanted to play for you a little snippet from a, I think the best version of this. This is from Errol Garner and his Concert by the Sea and this is Autumn Leaves. Mm-hmm. That was on uh, rotation in my house when we were we were young. And if you have never heard that version played by the sea, you have to go and listen to it. The, oh, the entire album is absolutely stunning, magical. Hey? magical. I've never
1: heard Greensleeves played so well. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Not That's green, right. yellow.
3: <laughs> but, yeah, and where, where it kind of takes me to, where this sort of reflection on grief and autumn and um, an art about grief, where it takes me to, in a strange and roundabout way, is the blog Red Hand Files, which is a blog that Nick Cave developed a couple of years ago. And I know that not everyone is necessarily a Nick Cave fan, but please bear with me whether you are or not, Sacri-lite. because <laughs> um, because a, co- yeah, a couple of years ago, he decided he's a sort of notoriously uh, private person, but things have changed in recent years. His son passed away. Uh, his son, Arthur, had an accident several years ago and I think that's really changed Nick Cave and the way he connects with his audience and so a few years ago he started this blog called Red Hand Files and he said on it, you can ask me anything there will be no moderator. I cannot recommend this blog highly it's so enough. Good. He is an extraordinary writer. It is so personal and intimate and empathetic and caring. He's written quite a lot about grief because many people have written to him to ask him about the death of his son. He's so open and um, engaged with people. Just last week he received. Received a number of questions from fans who had themselves asked him about the death of their own children. And I just want to read to you a paragraph from this one letter to give you a flavour for how extraordinary this blog is. He talks about um, how vulnerable his, him and his wife became. He said, But we ultimately are enriched by the absence of the one we loved and that we lost. In the end, grief is an entirety. It is doing the dishes, watching Netflix, reading a book, Zooming friends, sitting alone or indeed shifting the furniture around, which is a line from one of his best songs. Grief is all things reimagined through the ever emerging wounds of the world. It revealed to us that we had no control over events. And as we confronted our powerlessness, we came to see this powerlessness as a kind of spiritual freedom. So much more. There's Nearly a hundred of these letters on the blog, so I in- implore people to go and check it out.
0: Julia
1: Kieta, <laughs> what do you have for us? Continuing the autumnal theme and perhaps the musical sad bastard theme, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I love Nick Cave, that is meant affectionately. What I've been listening to recently is going back to some of my favorite albums, so Neil Young, I guess, is um. A later in life favorite for me. I, I didn't grow up n- kind of knowing who Neil Young was. I I, I thought maybe he was Neil Diamond. Um, <laughs> he <laughs> Neil wasn't when darker. he was younger. <laughs> <laughs> he um, you know, he just wasn't played in my house. But uh, in two thousand and seven, he he released a, an album, a live album called Live at Massey Hall, which I listened to at the time, and it created a great fascination with Neil Young. And I kind of deep dive back into his catalog. Um, and he's got two autumnally themed... Albums. One is called Harvest, which is a classic uh, from 1972, and then he kind of revisits a lot of the same themes with Harvest Moon, which was released in the 90s. Look, I'm I was thinking about it a lot because there's a great song on it called A Man Needs a Maid, which seems very TikTok (laughs) relevant. But um, in these ISO times, looking out the window at the overcast sky, you know Neil Young is just a perfect companion. And if you've never kind of gone there (laughs) with Neil Young. These are two great albums to start. He's just got a great way with lyrics. He looks at masculinity and... Grief, family, all those things. And he's just someone that whenever I listen to him, I feel kind of, I don't know, my heart breaks apart a little mm. bit, um, <laughs> which is great. Can music. I say
3: something? I mean, Desert Island Discs is something we've talked about on this show before, and that's a show I love. And Tom York from Radiohead was interviewed for Desert Island Discs recently, something I looked forward to my whole life. And it was interesting because he picked um, a Neil Young song, and he said that I didn't realise until I heard Neil Young. Uh, I think he picked after the Gold Rush. Um mm-hmm. and He said, when I heard that, I realised that men could sing like that and Mm. that it was okay for men to sing in this very vulnerable way. And he's just, I think, As a result, Neil Young has been so influential to generations of artists. His his music is beautiful.
0: Rana Mm -hmm. Hussain, what have you got for us, darling girl? Oh, look, from the highbrow
4: and very artistic to the trashy (laughs) for me, every time I bring something very mediocre and silly. Hey,
0: we need everything.
4: (laughs) That's just my taste, what can I say? (laughs) Um, Look, Autumn made me think of some of my favourite movies. Uh, to, To be honest, I think about life as a movie. (laughs) a lot and no matter what frame I'm looking at to me it's a scene in a movie but Autumn did bring to mind things like the Poet Society, Scent of a Woman. I probably should really be talking about Autumn in New York, but I'm not going to. I'm actually going to talk about one of my favourite romantic comedies and the world is about to find out how much I love romantic comedies because I'm about to launch my own rom-com podcast. So Woo-hoo. stay tuned for that. <laughs> but today, honestly, when I think Autumn, the first thing that comes to mind is When Harry Met Sally. Of course, it's for me, all about walking through Central Park under those beautiful leaves. But instead of talking about this movie, because let's face it, we've all seen it. <laughs> and if you haven't, do it straight away. I thought I'd do a live reading of one of my favourite scenes with my good friend
1: Julia. Rana. <laughs> I have decided for the rest of the day we are going to talk like this. <laughs> like this? No, please, to repeat after me. Papa Papa
4: Pepper. 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 <laughs> Papa.
1: Waiter, there is too much pepper on my paprikash. Waiter, there is too much pepper <laughs> on my paprikash. On my paprikash. But I would be proud to partake of your
4: pecan pie. Oh, uh, uh, no. <laughs> but I would be proud. <laughs> but I would be proud. To partake. To partake. Of your pecan pie. Of your pecan pie. Pecan pie. Pecan. Pie. Pe- Began
0: bye Dying dog. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Look. We are bringing
4: back the radio play. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's problematic as all rom-coms are. And honestly, for me, I think romantic comedies, people who know me know that I'm Muslim and dating is... W- not really what we do in the Muslim faith. So romantic comedies kind of gave me an in into a lot of white culture and a lot of dating culture. And so I think I lived a bit of a dating (laughs) life through all these romantic comedies. And I learnt that I'm not allowed to have guy friends through When Harry Met Sally.
0: (laughs) Well, we have really covered... The week from all angles, (laughs) I'd have to say, in this episode. So, I just want to say thank you so much to our awesome producer, Tess Armstrong, to Natasha and Hanine for joining us. We are very honoured to have had you on the show, and to all of our beautiful listeners thank you for continuing to listen to us in these footy adjacent times and for getting in touch with us because we love hearing from you so until next week take care there's only one thing left to say and that is go oh. footy. No. happy go for you